perhaps you do know, um, if you're dialed into the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, some of you might come out of those traditions, that this Sunday marks the beginning of what we have classically in the church called Advent. Advent is the time that the church remembers and celebrates the coming of God, as a scholar by the uh, name of Jürgen Moltmann used to say. The coming of God, the coming of God that is yet to come in the future, the coming of God that happens every day as the Spirit continues to work in the hearts of people and then into the world through those people. And the coming of God, of course, and principally at Christmas time, uh, that happened 2,000 years ago when God wrapped himself in the bands of human flesh. God himself became human, is the claim. To some in our world, the notion, the idea that God became human is an article of faith. We embrace it, we love it, we celebrate it. To others, the notion that God became human is an article of farce. It's unbelievable. And it's unbelievable for one of two reasons. Usually it's unbelievable in the first instance that God would become human because it's a humiliation to the idea of God himself. The idea that the transcendent, almighty, living God would condescend and wrap himself in the bands of human flesh, it's a disgusting idea and it's unbefitting of God, some would find. The whole idea of the incarnation is outrageous. Others would find it unbelievable because the idea of God himself is a humiliation to the intellect. That is to say, the idea that there is, is a God is ludicrous. It's beyond the pale of what is rational. And therefore, of course, the idea that God became human is beyond absurd because there is no God anyways. So it's pure fairy tale, it's pure mythical history. I would like to address the skeptic in the room this morning, which is to say I would like to address a little part of each one of us and maybe a bigger part of some of us because the reality is the philosopher Charles Taylor says is that we are living in a skeptical age an age of skepticism where it's hard to believe not only the existence of God sometimes, and we have niggling doubts about that, but it's hard to believe in a concept like the incarnation. So I want to address the skeptic this morning, but I want to address the skeptic not by rehearsing one of the many excellent arguments that our Christian brothers and sisters in the past have developed to prove or at least to suggest the reasonability of the existence of God. I'm not going to do that, but rather what I'm going to do is I'm going to try in very short order to rebut, to refute one of the arguments that skeptics have used in order to say there is no God, to say that God does not exist. Which argument is that? So the, the basic structure of the argument is if there is a God, then God will do such and such, if God doesn't do such and such, then God doesn't exist. There's a better variation of this argument. It goes like this. If there is a God, he would want us to know him. If there is a God, he has the power to make himself known to us. Here's how God can do it. God could reveal himself in one of the great cities of this world in a blinding flash of light over top of the city and unveil, reveal 
his glory and his goodness in unmistakable fashion. If God did that, it would be irrefutable that God exists. People would not only believe in him, but they would love him and worship him. And here's where the argument comes. The fact that God doesn't do this means that God doesn't exist. Is this a good argument against the existence of God? Do you think it's a good argument against the existence of God, seeing God allegedly hasn't done this? Well, I can tell you for myself that I don't find this a very convincing argument against the existence of God at all. And here's why. Because the prologue of the Gospel of John, which was read for us in the beginning here, tells us that God has, in essence, already done this in history past. And it didn't work. It didn't actually compel the kind of faith that made people want to come and kneel at the foot of their creator and worship him. It didn't work. Let me give you the prologue of John's gospel up to verse 14. Okay, what was read for us there was verses 1 through 14. 1 through 13, in a nutshell, is the history of the world prior to the coming of God in the flesh. That's what it is. It's a history of the world told in very short compass prior to the coming of Jesus in the flesh. It's the story, to put it another way, of the pre-incarnate Logos and his interaction with the world and the world's reception of him. You know what it looks like? Verse 5, the Logos, which is to say the pre-incarnate Christ. The Logos comes to Adam after the fall when he is in deep darkness. Adam rejects him. Verse 11, the Logos comes to the world prior to the flood and the world rejects him. The Logos, in verse 12, comes to his own, which is a cipher for Israel, God's own people, again and again and again throughout history. And on the whole, his people reject him. Goodness itself, in other words, God himself, the epitome of goodness comes to this world. And the world rejects him, rejects him, rejects him. This is why I don't think the argument works. Because when God himself comes and shows us his glory and his goodness... Actually, we humans, the tendency that we have in our brokenness and fallenness is to run the other way, is to turn away from God. Therefore, I don't think this argument works. And if you will ask the question, well, why? Why on earth would, run, would humanity run away from the God who is supremely good? And I will tell you in the phrase of a title of a Ralph Wood book on G.K. Chesterton, Friends, it's because of, as he puts it, the nightmare goodness of God. You know, we think that we love the good. We think that when we see the good, that we run toward it, that we want to embrace it, that we take it into ourselves. But the reality that the author of the Gospel of John is going to share with us and the rest of Scripture confirms is that the truth about us human beings is that we do not love goodness as much as we think we do. And in fact, the closer you get to goodness in its purest form, which is to say God, 
the more it becomes terrifying to us, the more we run away from it. And you'll say, but why on earth would that be? Why would we run away from goodness itself? Well, Jesus, who is God's goodness in a veiled form in his human form in the gospel, who allows glimmers of the extravagant goodness of God to shine out. Jesus tells us in the gospel, you know what he discovers as people encounter his own goodness? He says in John chapter 7, the world hates me because I tell it that what it does is evil. In John chapter 3, Jesus says, this is the verdict. Light, which is to say goodness itself. Light has come into this world, but the world loved darkness instead of the light. Why, Jesus? He goes on to say, because their deeds were evil. You know why we in our fallenness have a natural inclination to turn away from goodness rather than to run toward it, and the greater the goodness, the greater the fear in us? Because we feel that the goodness is going to erase us. It's going to make us non-existent. It's going to show just how insubstantial we really are. Can you identify with this? Even in lesser forms, have you had it where you've encountered goodness and to your own surprise and shock, you've realized that you wanted to snuff that goodness out because it was actually making your goodness not look so good? I had this one time when I was at Calvin College, I came into a room, into a new class, and there was another guy there and I hated him instantly. And my detestation for this guy was greater the second day and even greater the third day. And I was very curious about it because he was an unbelievably nice guy, gifted, smart, witty, handsome. And I realized that was precisely why I didn't like him. His light shone not a little, but a lot brighter than mine. And I felt it made my light look like it didn't exist. His presence made me feel, his goodness made me feel like I was going to be erased, like I was a nobody. And how much more then, when we come into the presence of goodness itself, goodness himself, God, we might think that we have and are a great light, you know, but what about when our little pen light is overcome by a thousand suns shining on us in all of their magnificent brilliance? Well, then we have no more illusions about our own brightness. Yes, indeed, it is the nightmare goodness of God and we run from it. And what I wanna to suggest to you this morning is that this is a titanic problem for us. It's a massive problem for us. C.S. Lewis expresses the problem beautifully well in his second book in a space trilogy that he had written. It's a book called Paralandra or Voyage to Venus. And in the opening of the book, one of the characters who happens to be C.S. Lewis himself, he's inserted himself into his book in a very clever fashion. C.S. Lewis comes into the presence of a being from another planet and it turns out this being is unfallen. And it turns out that Lewis is afraid of this being in the beginning but then he discovers that this being is totally good and his fear becomes, as he says, of another kind. Let me quote this for you, it's beautiful. My fear now is of another kind. I felt sure that the creature was what we call good, but I wasn't sure whether I liked goodness so much as I had supposed. This was a very terrible experience. 
As long as what you are afraid of is something evil, you may still hope that the good might come to your rescue. But suppose you struggle through to the good and find that it is also dreadful. How if food itself turns out to be the very thing you can't eat? How about if home, the very place you can't live, and your very comforter, the person who makes you uncomfortable? Then indeed there is no rescue possible. The last card has been played. Scripture says that we are sinners in need of salvation and that in order to receive salvation, we need to run into the arms of goodness himself. But we're stuck because we are simultaneously needing to run into the arms of a goodness that terrifies us. In order to overcome the nightmare that this world has become and that our lives can become, we need to run into the arms of the one who strikes us as nightmarish. How do we overcome this problem. We come back to the incarnation. That's what. We come back to this amazing article of faith that God, in fact, has become human. I'll read a story for you which gets to the point I'm making here. In conclusion, it's a very short story, but an absolutely beautiful one. Um, it's attributed to the radio personality Paul Harvey, but when Paul Harvey was asked if he actually wrote this story, he said he did not. And so we don't actually know who the author of the story is. It's entitled The Man and the Birds, and I will conclude with this. The man to whom I'm going to introduce you was not a Scrooge. He was a kind, decent, mostly good man, generous to his family, upright in his dealings with other men, but he just didn't believe all that incarnation stuff which the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just didn't make sense, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. I'm truly sorry to distress you, he told his wife, but I'm not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay at home, but that he would wait up for them. And so he stayed and they went to the midnight service. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier and then went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound, then another and then another, sort of a thump or a thud. At first, he thought someone must be throwing snowballs against his living room window. But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They'd been caught in the storm and in a desperate search for shelter had tried to fly through his large landscape window. Well, he couldn't let the poor creatures lie there and freeze. So he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter if he could direct the birds into it. Quickly, he put on a coat, galoshes, tramped through the deepening snow to the barn. He opened the doors wide and turned on a light, but the birds did not come in. He figured wood, food would entice them, so he hurried back to the house, fetched breadcrumbs, sprinkled them on the snow, making a trail for the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs and, and continued to flap around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them, waving his arms. Instead, they scattered in every direction except into the warm, lighted barn. And then he realized they were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, 
I am a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how? Because any move he made tended to frighten them, confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. If only I could be a bird, he thought to himself, and mingle with them and speak their language. Then I could tell them not to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to safe, warm, to the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them so they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind. And he stood there listening to the bells, Adesta Fidelis, listening to the bells pealing the glad tidings of Christmas. And he sank to his knees in the snow. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your great love, you decided to wrap yourself in the garments of flesh to become truly human, even though you are truly God at the same time. And to do this, O Lord, so that we might understand you, that we might know you, that you might turn the nightmare goodness of God into an invitation to be enveloped in your goodness and to be transformed by your love. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us in this fashion and for, indeed, your great love for us. Please penetrate our heart this Christmas season with the truth of this story once again. We've heard it so many times, but may it be ever new to our hearts, Lord. And for those who may not yet know or not yet believe, we ask that you would move and that you would speak and that you would communicate yourself to them as well. Bless us in this day, Lord, and hear our praise as we sing the doxology together.